Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Cancer diagnosis has changed radically in the era of precision medicine. New techniques like multi-cancer early detection screening tests can detect up to 50 types of cancer from a single blood draw. Now, we generally think of early detection, especially of cancer, as an unambiguously good thing, and given that, you might assume and expect that insurers would readily pay for it. But it turns out the considerations regarding insurance coverage for these screening tests are quite complex. And as is often the case, advances in medical technology have accelerated beyond certain policies that were put in place when cancer diagnosis and treatment were very different. How do we gain the advantages of better cancer screening technologies as they emerge? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I am here with Catherine Phillips, professor in the School of Pharmacy at the University of California, San Francisco, and a member of the Health Affairs Editorial Board. Dr. Phillips and colleagues published a paper in the March 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining payment considerations for multi-cancer screening tests. They outline clinical and economic considerations that we'll have to adjust to meet the new reality. We'll discuss these topics and more in today's episode. Dr. Phillips, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you very much. Great to have you with me today. Um, So let's start with the evolving science of multi-cancer early detection tests. I think those who have not been involved in the system recently probably have a pretty outdated sense of how we screen for and detect cancer. And uh, if we're going to have this conversation, we need to begin with an understanding of what's possible today that wasn't possible just a few years ago. Absolutely. Well, first of all, let me acknowledge my two co-authors, Patricia DeVerka, who was lead of the paper, and Michael Douglas. Thank you very much. All right, MCED, which some people call liquid biopsy. As you noted, Alan, these can detect minute quantities of DNA in the blood. So it's a simple blood test that looks at circulating tumor DNA and sometimes protein biomarkers. And as you noted, it can screen for over 50 different cancers. Whereas currently, we only have five recommended screening tests. So five versus 50 is a lot. And... Let's just uh, get a sense of this evolution. I mean, I think, again, if you haven't sort of been paying attention, you think of uh, tumor detection and uh, biopsy, uh, and you mentioned the areas that we have screening, they're common cancers. So what's changed here? Well, uh, we've never had a test like this before where we have one test that looks at many different cancers. Typically, we've had tests, for example, mammography for breast cancer, where we have one test for one type of cancer. And uh, importantly, 50% of cancer diagnoses and deaths occur in cancers where we have no screening tests. So we have this really untapped potential. Okay, so we can screen more. You know, there's been uh, so much controversy, say, around mammography, the example you just gave. What's the appropriate age at which it should be recommended? It always seems like screening would be a good thing, right? The more we know, the better. But 
even with the old technologies, that was not a straightforward uh, calculus. So why is it the case that we don't just want to screen more? Yes. Well, let's get into that. Um, One thing that's important to note is that these tests are designed to be used in addition to current screening as opposed to substituting. So, for example, women would still get mammograms, but these tests would be in addition to regular screening, and they would be used probably in healthy individuals, say at a certain age, starting at age 50, as part of an annual routine exam. Um, But let's get into all the reasons why there are challenges for evaluating these tests. And uh, first of all, let me just mention that these tests are already on the market now. You can purchase one of these tests. If you have $949, you can get one. Uh, This is being sold as a lab-developed test, which means it's not yet approved by the FDA. And there are many more of these tests that are coming. So this is something that's not just pie in the sky, but it's here now. So perhaps we should talk about how tests are evaluated, analytical validity, clinical validity, and clinical utility, because that gives us a framework for thinking about how how do we think about screening tests? So analytical validity is, is the test able to detect what you're trying to detect? in this case, a genetic variant. Then clinical validity is, is the variant related to disease? And then finally, clinical utility is, are the results actually going to be useful in patient care? Are they going to help patients? So that's the overall framework. When we put those pieces together, what we're saying is, is the information we're going to get from this test, is it accurate? Is it useful? And uh, useful depends, it would seem to me, a lot on what we can do if there's a positive result. I know there are multiple characteristics here, but why don't we start with that one? Uh, This notion of clinical utility, even though it was the third one you mentioned. You're talking about detection of a large number of cancers. Are these the cancers that people die of? Are these the cancers that we have treatments for? Um, Or are we just teaching people about a health condition they have, and there's really nothing you can do about it, but hey, now you have some information you didn't have before for 950 bucks. You're bringing up a lot of these important points as to why this is going to be challenging, because you're absolutely right that these other cancers that can be detected, some of them have interventions, but some don't. So one thing we're going to need to look at is, do these tests actually improve patient outcomes? Or do they simply tell people that they have some type of something in their blood, but we really don't know that it means anything? Because as you know, cancer is not cancer is not cancer. People can have markers that don't necessarily progress to anything that needs to be treated or they could be treated. So it's sorting out what's important and what's not important. So when I pay my $950, can I say, only tell me about the cancers that we have treatments for, or are they just going to tell me everything they can tell me, whether it's uh, good for me to know or not? 
Well, that's one thing that's going to be important to to look at. And um, that leads me to the topic of will payers cover these tests and what will they need to consider when they think about covering these tests? Payers typically like to think about one type of test that's been doing for one reason in one type of cancer. There's something specific that's going to be done when you get the results. And whatever intervention you do actually improves clinical outcomes. Well, as you can see, MCED tests don't fit that framework because you have one test for many cancers. You don't know how useful it will be for all those cancers, but you can't really evaluate over 50 different cancers for their clinical utility. So payers are going to have to think about how are they going to assess the value of these tests. I know I jumped right over to clinical utility, but maybe that takes us also a little bit back to the analytical and clinical validity. When I think about uh, the mammogram example you gave, part of the reason it was controversial is that you have false positive readings. You also have false negatives. And then, but if you have a false positive, a whole cascade of interventions start occurring. And mammograms themselves are not cost-free, not just from the dollar perspective, but they're, they're uncomfortable and, and uh, take people away from other things. And a false positive doesn't just create a cascade of financial consequences, but it can have health consequences and emotional consequences. So I'm I'm looking sort of at a like a multidimensional puzzle here where you've got a test that covers lots of different potential diagnoses with very different potential downstream consequences, including the possibility that we don't really have anything to throw at you for something that was detected. How do you wrap these all together into some sort of a, an assessment of whether this is worth doing or not? That's the thing we're going to have to figure out because to determine the economic value of these tests, you've pointed out that we're going to need to think about how can we do an analytical model, decision analytical model, that takes that into account. And each cancer has its own sensitivity and specificity in regards to the test, its own disease trajectory, its own downstream implications. So as you pointed out, you have the screening costs, you have follow-up, because this is not a diagnostic test. So you're going to need to do more testing. You have the interventions and treatments. And people tend to think that early detection is always a good thing. And you have noted that we've learned from other screening tests that that isn't the case. Patients often think that early detection is always a good thing, but the evidence doesn't really back that up. So we need to understand patient preferences. Will patients understand the limitations and the drawbacks? How will they value the different aspects of these tests? What weight will they put on the different benefits and the risks? Because it's very important to understand the patient perspective here. Um, And certainly we're going to have a high budget impact in the short term. So not only cost effectiveness is an issue, but short-term budget impact. As I mentioned, Medicare is likely to be the largest payer here, and this could have a big impact on the Medicare budget if it's used uh, routinely 
in healthy individuals. And let's not forget that we have to consider disparities. We have a lot of disparities in cancer screening now. We don't know if these tests will increase as opposed to decrease disparities. And we definitely are going to need to look at that. Well, the good news is in your paper, you try to get us out ahead of some of these problems as they emerge. And I want to talk about the policy implications, the policy framework that you propose. We'll do that after we take a short break. The Rural Health Research Gateway is your preeminent resource for free, timely, and relevant rural health research funded by the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy. Visit Gateway at ruralhealthresearch.org and subscribe to Gateway's research alerts to be notified whenever new rural health research is published. Follow Gateway on Twitter and Facebook at RHR Gateway for key research findings. This message was paid for by the Rural Health Research Gateway at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Catherine Phillips about multi-cancer early detection tests. Before the break, we were going through some of the complexities of making decisions about whether or not to cover these tests if you're a payer. Uh, Now I want to turn to really the policy framework here. Um, As you explore in the paper, and we won't do it full justice here, Medicare has its own set of policies with respect to coverage. And they're explicitly designed to avoid cost effectiveness, uh, whereas private payers, uh, commercial insurance primarily, um, is very attuned to questions of cost effectiveness. Um, So I'm curious if you could just, as we get the conversation back on track here, say a little bit about uh, the, the Medicare framework and what you think it helps us answer, but also what it sort of leaves behind as we're in this world of of a new era of testing? Yes. Medicare is very complicated, very convoluted in terms of coverage. One thing we need to remember about Medicare is that it does not cover preventive services in general. When Medicare was first set up, preventive services such as screening were not included in the Uh, statute. Now, there have been cancer screening tests and other services that have been covered, but that requires legislation. Um, Another avenue is to get an ARB rating through the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. So talk a little bit more about that, because we've heard more of that now that the Affordable Care Act requires commercial insurance to cover A and B rated uh, prevention. Medicare and commercial payers, um, they both have different criteria and different constraints. As you mentioned, for example, cost effectiveness is not part of the mandate of CMS when they make Medicare coverage decisions. But there's a very convoluted decision tree that shows the different routes these MCED tests could go through in order to get coverage. Um, There is, for example, legislation that's been proposed uh, that's not been passed that that would cover these types of tests. 
And that would basically jump, uh, sort of leapfrog over the process of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force? Well, that's another thing we should talk about. Um, You know, there's been a lot of controversy recently over the Medicare coverage policies. And I'm referring here to the very controversial decision on um, Alzheimer's drugs. On Adjuhelm, yep. Yes, on Adjuhelm and related Alzheimer's drugs, where the FDA provided accelerated approval when the evidence had not been fully developed. And that put CMS in a tough position in terms of what they were going to do about coverage policies. When we think about coverage, we also need to think about regulation and the fact that the FDA and the CMS would benefit from greater coordination so that the needed evidence is available when Medicare needs to make its coverage decisions. There is some evidence being developed on these tests. I'd like to mention that United Kingdom has some clinical trials underway to develop the evidence. Uh, We're going to need uh, both trials and real-world evidence, given the, the difficulties of doing randomized clinical trials in this type of clinical scenario, where it would take many, many patients and many years to actually demonstrate a survival benefit. Uh, Yeah, we probably should pause on this topic of real-world evidence. Um, The FDA approval regime is built around trials, um, but real-world evidence offers a different perspective. Can you just say a little more about what that is? Yes. Real-world evidence is looking at what is actually going to happen. The FDA looks at the randomized clinical trials of the benefits in an ideal situation in a controlled setting. But particularly for tests like these, we need to understand how will they actually be implemented? What will providers do? What will patients do? So we're going to need to use uh, many different types of data designs uh, in order to collect the evidence that will demonstrate the benefits and uh, address the potential harms of these tests. So I want to go a little bit out on a limb here, but you're the right person to go out on it with. Uh, You know, you immediately uh, moved into the preventive uh, coverage framework for Medicare Um, because, after all, screening is an element of of prevention. Uh, What you're describing here with these cancer screens sounds a whole lot like what we hear about genetic testing in general, not just about cancer. I would have a hard time calling those sort of blind DNA tests uh, prevention. I don't know how we would even think of them that way. So is prevention really even the right framework here? Are we somewhere in a space of evaluating things that don't sort of fit neatly in the prevention treatment box? Well, Alan, you're right that things have gotten really murky as to what is really prevention versus screening versus early detection versus treatment. And genetic testing has changed how we look at things. Um, The center that we have at UCSF called the Transfer Center 
has been looking at genetic testing for over a decade, and we've seen the evolution of genetic tests. Originally, we had one test for one type of genetic variation, for example, BRCA testing for breast cancer. Then we moved to panels of tests. Now we have whole exome and whole genome where people are saying, well, let's do whole genome screening on newborns and get all this information early and then use it to help prevent future health conditions. But you're right that it then raises a lot of issues regarding how do we evaluate these types of tests? Who's going to pay? Who wants to pay up front for a newborn when the test may benefit people their entire life? Is that the obligation of the insurer at the moment or should it be shared? So we've been grappling with these questions for genetic testing as a whole. And MCED just further uh, provides challenges. As I said, it also could provide great benefits, but we have to, to weigh both the challenges and the potential benefits. Right. And I certainly don't want to come across as saying there aren't huge potential benefits and probably our ability to identify and realize those benefits will grow over time. These technologies are still uh, quite young. Um, but I want to bring back a topic you brought up earlier about patient preference and about equity. How do we layer those over these broad policies? Like when there's a U.S. Preventive Services Task Force grade, it has to sort of make one grade regardless of the variety of people's uh, personal preferences and regardless of the existence of current inequities. So how do we layer something very individual and you might say precise because this comes out of precision medicine on top of policies that tend to be yes, no, thumbs up, thumbs down, we'll pay for it or we won't? Absolutely. Individual versus populations. That's a dilemma. And let me give you an example. The economic evaluations typically, such as CA, typically look at an average cost effectiveness for a population. But that may hide the fact that some interventions really benefit people with certain characteristics and others don't benefit people, for example, by race ethnicity, because people have different uh, genetic variations, a different prevalence of cancers, so that you need to dig inside the population results in order to look at these subgroups and to see what is the differential impact and therefore who will benefit and who will not benefit, even though policies need to consider what happens to populations as a whole. Well, it sounds like you and your center are going to have your hands full for a while. <laughs> well, it's great to have this conversation with you. And what's particularly uh, encouraging to me is that you're looking ahead as the prevalence of these tests are, it's still limited. As you say, you can go out and find it, but it's not part of the routine standard of care. Um, but if it were to become so, the implications could be quite profound for healthcare costs and for healthcare outcomes, and as you note, for disparities in honoring patient preference. And if we don't 
ask these hard questions, uh, even though they may not have obvious answers, uh, we're sure to find ourselves in a place where we're kind of stuck with old rules designed for a different time. And and you're helping us think about how to re-examine those and redefine them so that we're more prepared for the, the future rather than just the past. Yes, you put it into good words. That's what our paper makes the point of, that we need to do this early. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, Dr. Phillips, thank you for the conversation, the paper, and for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.